Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. Also in Germany, in Berlin, in fact, is Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So this is an unusual episode, not only because we're in the same place, but because the entirety of the episode will be focused on a single topic. And the data point there is 1983. That is the year that Ronald Reagan signed the law that established Martin Luther King Day as a national holiday. In America in the 50s and 60s, one of the important crises we faced was racial discrimination. The man whose words and deeds in that crisis stirred our nation to the very depths of its soul was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I have a dream my poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. So each year on Martin Luther King Day, let us not only recall Dr. King, but rededicate ourselves to the commandments he believed in and sought to live every day. The holiday is now coming up on January 16th, Monday. The holiday, of course, is dedicated to the leader of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, who was assassinated in Tennessee in 1968. He was a monumental figure in American history, a fighter for equal civil rights for black people, and a pioneer of tactics of nonviolent civil disobedience. Towards the end of his life, he was also more outspoken about his views on broader economic policy and economic justice, so we thought we'd take the opportunity to look at all the economic dimensions of Martin Luther King's life's work. So, Adam, to start with his work on mass nonviolent protest, what exactly are the economic preconditions for that kind of civil disobedience? I mean, historically, is this a phenomenon of a certain level of economic development? You might think so if you had some kind of, kind of, I don't know, an evolutionary theory of political development and the attenuation of violence or something like that, a kind of, I know, Stephen Pinker world value survey kind of a thing where, I don't know, opposition to violence was dependent on college education or some index of that type. Um, but it would be historically wrong. Um, after all, the 20th century icon of nonviolence before MLK was Gandhi in colonial India. And left-wing critics of Gandhi would say that he was a class politics and it was a politics of the upper class and it was about containing the threat of popular violence and the ultimate threat of peasant revolution, Mao's style. But whatever take you have on Gandhi and nonviolence, it was certainly a politics of a poor society which mobilized tens and then hundreds of millions of people in opposition to the British Empire. 
and it used the tactics of the poor. So if a colonial government imposed a tax on a certain commodity, you try to do without it, salt, for instance. You can strike, you can boycott state events, you can turn your back on official dignitaries that visit. Um, a nonviolent protest in this form, I think, is much more crucially dependent on different types of discipline, the ability to discipline protesters um, on the one hand, um, but it's also, of course, a question really of disciplining power and the power that's being challenged. And I think those are much more crucial determinants of where nonviolent resistance becomes possible or not. I mean, think about the instance of National Socialist Germany. I mean, nonviolent resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto is not going to make a damn bit of difference to a genocidal Nazi regime. On the other hand, nonviolent protest by um, German women um, against the euthanasia campaign in Berlin actually did stop the Nazi regime. So it's a condition of of a, an incredibly tense and complex balance between the means of protest on the one hand and the kind of forms of repression that are used on the other hand. And Gandhi's political genius um, showed in his endless exploitation of the professed liberalism of the British, essentially, and, and repeated calling of their hypocrisy. Um, King's own early exposure to the ideas of nonviolence came as an undergraduate at Morehouse College in Atlanta. He read David Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience and couldn't apparently at first see the relevance of that um, New England mentality to the extreme conditions of black Americans in the South where lynching and just over plain murder were the common experience in African males. In other words, it was difficult to see how that rather passive notion of civil disobedience could translate into an environment as dangerous as the Jim Crow South. And it was really, and this is what's so significant, precisely when he began to study the life and works of Mahatma Gandhi, that he began to see the awesome macro political potential of a mass movement of nonviolent protest for all its risks and for all its hazards for those involved. Um, to move a polity like that of the United States, which after all, like the late British Empire, made certain, gave you know hostages to fortune in the form of constitutional legal promises that could be called through daring, brave acts of, of civil disobedience. So it's direct, it's a direct line that runs from poor country nonviolent protest in British India to the American South in the 1950s. So... What exactly is the main lever by which nonviolent protest of this kind creates social change exactly? Is it through moral suasion, the kind of moral pressure on the conscience of passive supporters of injustice that creates this change? Or is it economic pressure? Uh, you mentioned the different kind of boycotts that both Gandhi and King were involved in organizing? Is, that, is it that kind of material economic pressure that actually is more responsible for the change that they're seeking? I, I think it's a combination of mechanisms, and that's worth emphasizing because there's almost a kind of mystical, magical feel that surrounds the idea of nonviolent protest, and I think it's important to demystify that. Um, but it's also crucial to actually understand, I think, the kind of almost vertiginous quality that nonviolent politics takes um, at the hands of its classic exponents, Gandhi and King, because it's really crucial, I think, to understand what it involves, because it's the opposite of passive, right? King himself said that he would never have joined a pacifist movement. It can almost seem aggressive in the way that it deliberately calls the bluff 
of those who claim that their power will be founded on violence. It goads them into striking the protester, right? It, it, it goads them into shedding blood and in the process of doing so, exposing the horror and the, the lack of legitimacy of what they're involved in. So it's not so much moral suasion, if you like, as moral force, actually. Um, and that, I think, is an absolutely crucial thing to understand. Also, by calling it nonviolent, I think we also appropriately register the fact that it is always hedged by the threat of violence. That, In other words, this is an intensely violent situation in which somebody is choosing to mark their position by an ostentatious, a spectacular refusal of the logic of violence that surrounds them. But of course, around the edges of that always lurks the threat that if you don't deal with us, you'll deal with somebody else or you won't be dealing with them because they're going to come and bomb you or try and assassinate you or launch mass protests or riots or so on, right? And so the nonviolent movement is always situated within a context of, of forced by the oppressor and the threat of the resort to different sorts of tactics by the protesters. And this can take on a whole gamut of different forms. I mean, most spectacularly in the case of the ANC, in South Africa or the IRA Sinn Féin in, in Northern Ireland, where you actually see a dual strategy being pursued with an armed wing, which is involved in bombings or assassinations, and uh, ostentatiously an officially nonviolent wing, which insists on the need for negotiation. And, and this can take the form of both aggressive strategies and also defensive strategies, right? So there's, there's no doubt in the case of the civil rights struggle in the United States that the willingness of black people and black communities to defend themselves, to defend themselves and to defend those who sought to help them in the civil rights movement, if necessary with the gun in hand, also played a vital role in the ecology of the nonviolent civil rights struggle, right? The KKK and the racist thugs knew that they had to pick their victims quite carefully. They had to truly prey on the defenseless because... There was not actually impunity. There was not actually immunity when push came to shove. You didn't actually know whether there might not be a man waiting on a porch with a shotgun for you when you attempted to set up a cross, right? So, and this is the zone in which King and the advocates of nonviolence continuously had to operate right? and, and consciously, consciously operated. Of course, there was also, as you stressed, an economic component here. I mean, if you take, if you take, the classic first phase, the Montgomery bus um, boycott of 1955. I mean, it's an economic protest because 75% of the riders on the Montgomery bus system were black. Um, so the boycott is classically Gandhian. It's a move, it's a demonstration uh, of economic independence on the one hand, because the black community organized alternative means of transport. But it's also a way of forcing the white establishment to come to terms. So they work in conjunction with each other. And there is also always, if you like, an outside element. In the case of the American South, it's the federal government, it's the appeal to the national community, but it is also, crucially, an appeal to the international community, which, which um, it was exerting very considerable pressure on the United States in the context of the Cold War in the 50s and 60s, because the racism of the Jim Crow South was a profound embarrassment to the claim of the West to represent you know, basic rule of law, democratic norms, human rights, even freedom of speech. Um, and so that combination, which we also see at work in South Africa later on, um, is working on the United States at this moment. So that was a very in-depth description of King's social justice vision. I'm curious if it was always integrated with a broader economic vision. I mentioned 
in the sort of intro there that that it seems like he became more invested in in social democratic ideas over time or is that a mistake was there a sort of always an internal connection between his social justice ideas and a broader economic understanding of society i think there's um there is a stage theory here, which is not entirely unreasonable, and it was an explicit sort of tactic of Kings and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, right, to have a first wave starting in the mid-1950s to achieve the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 64 and the Voting Rights Act in 65, and then to move on to a wider campaign for social transformation in American society. And that was always understood, if you like, as a phased model. But they were always interlocked, those two phases, and they couldn't but be because in King's thought and in his biography, um, they're in fact inseparable. And there's an extent to which, if you like, in the later commemoration, the memorialization of the civil rights movement, there is there are far too sharp distinctions being drawn so as to separate the now uncontentious, indeed foundational history of the civil rights movement for modern America in its phase from the bus boycott through to the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 65, from the later more contentious, socially contentious protests, which are also associated, of course, with anti-Vietnam war protests. But in King's himself, I don't think there's any question at all that from the beginning, the very beginning, indeed from his early childhood, the two things were closely linked. I mean, he grew up in quite a prosperous family, but he was born in 1929. So he was immediately exposed to the poverty of the Great Depression and in one of his earliest college papers written in, in 1950, King literally wrote that there are two inseparable twins, the twins of racial injustice and economic injustice. These are directly linked. And King paraphrased Niebuhr's critique of Christianity when he wrote that any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them and the social conditions that cripple them, is a spiritually moribund religion awaiting burial, right? This is the authentic voice of somebody who clearly understands his spirituality, his, his politics of racial liberation and social and economic justice is just completely inseparable. And we know these things about the early biography and thinking of King, largely thanks to his formidable and brilliant partner in life, his wife, Coretta Scott King, who... Um, kept a collection of his of his um, youthful writings um, uh, safely stowed away, in part because they so radically subverted the narrative of King in the 50s and the 60s as a relatively conservative civil rights advocate, and then handed them to researchers in the 1990s. But it was not by accident that she had them, because Coretta Scott King grew up in much, much more strange circumstances than Martin Luther King. And she actually picked cotton as a child. And she was the radical in the partnership. And in wooing her, it's really in wooing her that you see, as it were, King outing himself as you know, a man of radical opinions. It's an extraordinary story. I mean, they would exchange love tokens of political radicalism. So she sent him Edward Bellamy's famous Looking Backwards, a classic utopian socialist novel. Uh, from 1888 as a, as, a, as a gift. And he responded with this letter in which he professes that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic, you know, that capitalism has outlived its usefulness. It's brought on a system that takes necessities from the masses and gives luxuries to the classes. And he speaks in all of this, you know, that this language of radicalism of the 1950s, which is not a Marxism, but it's a pure-blooded social progressive social democratic politics of that period, 
when he is at his most forthcoming and 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 uh, trying to attract this brilliant woman to his side. And in that first struggle, the bus boycott in, in 1955, and which is now remembered, of course, for Rosa Parks' activism. And Rosa Parks herself is now a civil rights icon. But if you look into the biography of, of Parks, I mean, she was a social justice militant first and foremost, who since the 40s had been linked to American leftism. Her husband had been involved with communist associated movements in the 1930s. And so this, you know, the, the Montgomery bus dispute, for all its sort of iconic elementary school simplicity, was, in fact, a act of American social radicalism. And if you, and if you think about it, like, it, it, if it's true that 75% of the bus customers are black, it's also true that they are, by definition, working class. I mean, this is a social justice issue, because why are you riding a bus? You're riding a bus because you don't have a car, right? And, and that is a marker of your working class status in 1950s. American society. And it goes on and on and on, right? If you think about the most famous, I mean, perhaps certainly MLK's most famous speech, one of the most famous speeches in the English language, the, the I Have a Dream speech delivered in Washington on August 28th, 1963. That speech was delivered as part of a march on Washington for jobs and freedom. And both elements of that are essential. This is the early phase of the campaign for full employment and employment guarantees that would mark the careers of both Martin Luther King and his wife all the way onwards over the coming decades. In December 64, after he's received the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, the next thing that King does is to return to Atlanta to join a picket line and declare an economic boycott in support of 600 black women who are on strike. So this neat distinction between the phase of Political, illegal civil rights and economic struggle that comes afterwards is, is, is false. In 66, he's associated with the Chicago campaign, which is challenging racial segregation in the North. Um, he is signed up, of course, to the, um, the campaign for full employment um, and the, the activism of the Philip Randolph Institute. Um, which is promoting an economic bill of rights for all Americans and the Freedom Budget, which is an alternative radical Keynesian budget for full employment. And he's in Memphis, in Tennessee, where he meets his assassin's bullet because he is trying to use Memphis as a launching pad for the Poor People's Campaign, which he envisages as a racially unifying campaign of the working class, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, Native Americans, who are going to besiege Congress and demand adequate housing, healthcare, and education. This is why King is putting everything on the line in this terrifyingly difficult situation in Memphis, where he parachutes in to try and mobilize around a garbage workers strike. And after his killing, uh, Coretta Scott King carries this, this campaign onwards, right? So as their legacy as a radical couple extends into the 1970s, and it's weird twisted, somewhat decaying fruit is, and this is the result of congressional politics, is the Humphrey Hawkins Amendment of October 1977, which is, you might argue, the last really radical you know, piece of legislation passed by the American Congress, which seeks to turn the right of all Americans who are able, willing, and seeking to work into a full employment promise of sorts. It's not a guarantee by any means, but it's what the Fed refers to when it says it has a dual mandate is the legacy of this decades-long campaign to link social and racial justice. We'll take a quick break here, but we'll be right back to continue talking about Martin Luther King. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. 
So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me, and I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. It's fascinating to know about the depth of King's thinking and of his commitment to economic justice. And yet it does seem to me that Marxism as a kind of competing um, model for the resistance of the world's disadvantaged. It does seem like Marxism offers a slightly different model for thinking about social justice and social justice movements. Obviously, King is such a hallowed figure in the United States, he rarely comes under any criticism. But what would a Marxist critique of King's activism be? And I guess maybe to turn it around, how, if at all, did King criticize Marxism? I mean, yeah, King was an intellectual first and foremost, right? I mean, this is, this is his basic formation. I mean, he was a formidably wide-ranging reader of social theory and philosophy. He had a deep grounding in continental philosophy and theology of the interwar period. He was a reader of Heidegger, of Bultmann, and so on. And so naturally, he read Marx. I mean, you couldn't have that kind of education and not have read Marx quite extensively. And he was profoundly opposed to the metaphysical structures of communism and Marxism and to the ends means logic and as you'd expect. But I think one of the things that he took from Marxism in a typically self-critical way was the risk that religion can become an opium of the masses, that it can become a tool uh, in the hands of the middle classes. And, and one of the ways in which one can understand that abiding commitment to social justice and the truly self-lacerating demand that to take this seriously is, as it were, a determined effort to answer that Marxian critique 
which is that the church becomes essentially a pillar of the status quo. And if there was one thing he was determined it should not be, it was it was that. Um, as to the relationship between Marxism in the United States, communism indeed, uh, far left activism and civil rights, I mean, all the way back to Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, I mean, no right thinking radical anywhere in the world has ever ignored the you know, the howling injustice of American racial slavery and the racist order that followed. Marx and Engels enthusiastically followed the Civil War. There were many comrades in arms of Marx and Engels from the 1840s revolutions in uh, Europe who were fighting in particular the Army of Missouri, the radical army of the Union in the Civil War. They cheered for Lincoln, they cheered for emancipation. And so obviously all the way down to the 1960s, at least it was obvious then, perhaps no longer now, but it was obvious then that the civil rights movement was a cause of the American left in the full-blooded sense of the word. It was a cause of the entire range of socialist, Marxist, and communist movements. In the 1930s, the American Communist Party rallied around to mobilize legal representation, to campaign worldwide against lynch justice in the United States. The uh, CIO was one of the, the most left-leaning of the American trade unions, was the anti-racist, anti-segregationist uh, labor movement in the United States. So it would be entirely false to even allow the possibility of any kind of fundamental opposition here, right? It's all and only a McCarthyite atmosphere of the 40s and 50s would cause anyone to really want to pull this apart or bury this history, right? Because actually it should be a proud history of association between the two movements. But where they fundamentally differ, of course, is in their assessment of the possibilities of reform and the directions of, in which reform can be chosen and found. And if you see, and there are two different levels here, I think, right? If you see racism like sexism or nationalism as expressions of the alienation in society created by capitalist economic structures, then there's no escaping from them fundamentally outside revolution. And you could then, as it were, either prioritize the revolution in a broad-based sense or in the, more, in the manner of King, as it were, see them as stepping stones and closely allied movements where you naturally move from one to the other. Even more essentialist, you could even say essentializing, would be the view that says that it's not just that racism is an ideological or epiphenomenal or even sociological accompaniment of capitalism, but that it is essential to the functioning of capitalism as capitalism. And this is the position of a tradition of black radicalism that goes back to the studies of Caribbean slavery around people like Eric Williams, and it's, it's extended down to the present day most influentially by somebody like Cedric Robinson and his, his theorizing about racial capitalism. And, and the crucial point here is, and it's really head-turning, buy it or not, believe this argument or not, it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sign of the imaginative and intellectual power of this tradition that it essentially turns the entire history of capitalism on its head. Because if there's one thing that you know, Western narratives, liberal and Marxist, are convinced of, it is that capitalism and liberalism displace feudalism. Right? And so they are, to that extent, however ambiguous, vectors of progress and development. And the challenge of theorists of racial capitalism like Robinson is to say, why are you so confident of that? What if instead what we're actually talking about is the metastasization, the generalization of feudal structures of power, which are based on categories of rank and of identity and of direct expropriation 
through capitalism to the entire world in the form, of course, initially of Caribbean uh, colonial uh, chattel slavery and plantation economics. And that brand of thinking sees the entire history of the 20th century led and supercharged by America's influence in the Caribbean and the, the American formal and informal empire that extends into the former zones of slavery um, all the way through into the 20th century and down to the present day with mass incarceration and the economics which are based on, on that. And so if you take this kind of position, then there's really, there can be no compromise and there's very little wiggle room, right? There's, because this would mean that capitalism... It's not just that you need to overthrow capitalism such that mistaken ideas, bad ideologies, misunderstandings of identity will be attenuated and disappear. It's literally that capitalism cannot function without this crucial element of racism at its core. And, and just so I understand, that discourse came after King's own it, It's life. certainly not one that is, you know, centrally on the radar at his time and has emerged very prominently, really, in the last couple of decades I think particularly in reaction to the horror of mass incarceration in the United States and this aching, you know, heartbreaking, crushing disappointment of the promise of genuine equality. And I don't mean to emotionalize and psychologize this, but I think those are some of the circumstances which open the door to this really implacable and, and uncompromising reading. Mm. of the intertwining of these two histories. No, it's interesting that radicalism is its own spectrum. There are more and less versions of, of radicalism. It sounds like that's even a, yeah, it sounds like radicalism has itself developed over time. But I did want to now finally end by asking about King's present day role in the United States and its economy. It seems like King's image has been embraced across the country, including by major corporations and across the economy, including in popular culture. He's sort of been, yeah, co-opted by the American economy in a certain sense. And I was just curious, yeah, we've spent a fair bit of time here talking about King as an economic and political radical. So what does it say about the United States and, and I guess, uh, its system of capitalism in terms of what it has done with King's work and image in our day? I mean, it does in some sense tend to confirm you know, the worst fears of the most radical reading of the metastasizing, omnivorous qualities of capitalism as culture, right? That it can assimilate anything. Um, I mean, it should be said that King himself was discreet in the way in which he presented his politics. And at critical moments in the late 60s, when it's clear that the ideas that are being advanced really do pose profound challenges. And, you know, he, he's so smart, he can see it coming a mile away. And he'll say, you know, it looks like we're getting into really difficult territory here. Um, so he can see, and he's a tactician, he's a politician, he's an incredibly canny political operator. And so he is maneuvering across that terrain but this has been there, I guess, to kind of pull back to history again, really from the beginning. I mean, the association between the civil rights movement and popular culture is absolutely endemic, endogenous. You know, Pete Seeger and people like that were part of the of the, the campaigns of the mid-1950s already. Um, and, and popular culture can take the form of overtly politicized popular culture, but also just popular culture that refuses to align and that, that, that is dissident and just simply doesn't fit. But it's also true that there is an emerging alignment between big corporate money and the civil rights movement from a surprisingly early stage. I mean, take Time magazine, 
and which puts which puts King on its cover in 1957, as early as 1957. I mean, this in a society which had effectively outlawed W.E.B. Du Bois, right, and Paul Robeson, both of whom had essentially been stripped of their passports and had their public lives destroyed because they had spoken out against American militarism and were too closely aligned with the Soviet Union in the views of the, the day. King was already being turned into a assimilatable commodity on the cover of of Time magazine in 57. Come 1960, you know, uh, and the famous uh, counter boycotts, which took place on corporate property, right? They took place in Woolworths um, in in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina. All of a sudden, Woolworths, which is a global, you know, department store business, discovers it needs black business consultants to figure out how to manage this terrifying public relations problem that it now has with the politics of America in its most odious forms being literally fought out at its, you know, diner counters. And Woolworths desegregates officially in July 1960 as a result, and in part as the result of mediation between black business consultants and the civil rights movement. And today now that particular Woolworths store location is a civil rights museum. Or take 1964, right, when MLK wins the Nobel Prize. Global celebration, he's lionized the world over. But what is Atlanta going to do with this fact, right? The, 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 the first son of the city to win the Nobel Prize is a notorious black radical activist. And they clearly have to give King a welcome banquet when he returns to the city in 65. But the, the terrifying thing is that no one is buying tickets. None of the white establishment that had the money and that were, you know, would needed to show up were actually buying tickets. So what did the mayor did, um, Ivan Allen at the time, he turned to the powerhouse corporate brokers of the city of Atlanta. And in the mid-1960s, that's Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola was a global company with a global reputation. And who do you go to? You go to the legendary boss of Coca-Cola from the interwar period, Robert Woodruff onwards. And he has a word with current CEO, John Paul Austin, who had recently returned from Atlanta from a stint in South Africa, where he had seen how damaging the apartheid system there was to the functioning of that society and its reputation abroad. And all of a sudden, the word goes out from Coca-Cola, the dominant corporate patron of the city, that Coca-Cola cannot stay in a city that's going to have this kind of reaction and not honor a Nobel Prize winner. Coca-Cola snaps its fingers and the white elite of Atlanta turns out to give um, Martin Luther King and his wife a, a fitting reception on their return to the city. So from that moment onwards, you can see corporate America navigating this incredibly fraught terrain between the entrenched power structures and inequalities of American society um, the evidently legitimate demand for change and uh, the success of civil rights activists in calling America on its the hostages it has given to fortune, the promises that it has made um, to guarantee rights, and the genuinely bona fide, delicate politics of a profoundly, doggedly racist uh, white society um, that is profoundly uncomfortable with the with this with this future that both corporate capitalism and civil rights activists are painting for them in the mid 1960s. Yeah, I mean, I just have to ask: Is this something? Is there some special quality about King that made him assimilable in this way, or is it again? Is it just sort of something about capitalism? It can assimilate anything, any criticism, any force. It can sort of 
suck into its maw and <laughs> assimilate in this way. I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 the number of people that can systematically escape the logic of commercialization. I mean, I mean, it's quite difficult to think of any major cultural figures which in one way or another have escaped that. If you think of like Karl Marx t-shirts and, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and Che Guevara, Bebrabilia and um, no, I mean, the capacities for, for, for corporate and capitalist uh, culture to, to incorporate um, any figure like that is is profound. But, I mean, he walked a fine line. I mean, this was not a man that presented himself as, you know, a flaming radical. I mean, as a, as a student, yeah. he was notorious. He was known as Tweedy. He drove, you know, nice new cars. He was a man that was conscious of social standing, in a sense. And that, that and a man, of course, also who exudes profound personal dignity and, um you know, into that, to that extent is, it, it, there's no doubt a kind of a charisma that that is irresistible. I mean, you see that also about, you know, the struggles to assimilate a figure like Nelson Mandela after his release and the series of incredibly awkward encounters you can watch on YouTube between Nelson Mandela and American interviewers um, in the 1990s who were asking him to distance himself from left-wing governments around the world that were profoundly solid in profound solidarity with the ANC during its period of struggle, and he will have none of it. I mean, just you know, none of it. I mean, that is, yeah. If there is any takeaway here, it's, it, it is, I guess, suppose that King was both, yeah, remarkably radical and at the same time extremely popular. He managed to accomplish that, and probably he's part became of the- popular. If you look at the opinion polling of the late sixties, King is not a popular man. Mm. Um, becomes an icon, um, but mm. that does not reflect the mood of the time. The opinion part, I mean, he died a man, not exactly in despair, but certainly beleaguered and on the edge by all accounts um, because he was under challenge both from you know the persistent racism, the society he was trying to change, and on the other hand, the impatience and the sheer desperation and indeed simply the violence of many people um, in the communities that he was trying to mobilize who, who, you know, the Memphis mobilization effort was derailed by local radicals who did not buy the nonviolent message and wanted instead a showdown with the local police. Well, that's certainly food for thought for Americans as we take a day off on Monday, uh, but maybe also for others around the world who are listening to this. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.
Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.